This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective. Season 7, Episode 11. Hate in 2021. Gonzaga Institute of Hate Studies. In conversation with Christine Hoover, Director. The Book of Wisdom of the Old Testament tells us that there is a time to love and a time to hate. Hatred is a poison that destroys us from within, producing bitterness that eats away at our hearts and minds. And Scripture tells us not to let a root of bitterness spring up in our hearts. Only in the last week, we've seen two more mass murders in Atlanta and Boulder fueled by racial and religious fears. And no one living in America today would doubt that increasing polarization along racial, social, religious, political, gender, class, and regional lines is fueling the rise of hate. Starting with perceived otherness, too often we let the differences, the otherness, lead us down a slippery slope of suspicion, dislike, fear, isolation, and anger, which can quickly grow from dislike to animosity and hatred. And once hatred of the other has, been, has taken hold, the process of dehumanizing the other begins. Hatred is the result of a dehumanizing the other begins. Hatred is the result of a social process which, left unchecked, leads to fighting, discrimination, confrontation, and the erosion of liberty. In a nation with over 330 million firearms in the hands of individuals, the identification and study of hate to curtail it in its earliest stages is essential. Enter Gonzaga University's Institute of Hate Studies and Director Professor Christine Hoover. The Institute, which was created over 20 years ago, is an academic think tank which studies hate and the purveyors of hate to inform society and public policy. Law enforcement, government, the armed forces, organized religion, academia, foreign policy, and social policy. Gonzaga University is a co-ed Jesuit institution founded in 1887 in Spokane, eastern Washington State, by an Italian Jesuit, Joseph Cataldo. Over the years, the university expanded to include a law school, business school, nursing school, and school of education. Today, Gonzaga has an enrollment of 8,000 students and faculty and staff of 1,200, drawing students from throughout the West. But in particular, the Pacific Northwest, which was one of the last regions to be settled in the continental United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Eastern Washington was then, and still is today, a commodity-driven economy with farming, ranching, mining, and forestry the primary drivers. 
centered around Spokane, Washington's second largest city of 208,000 people, the eastern part of the state and neighboring Idaho and Montana are politically and socially more conservative than the tech-driven Seattle metropolis to the west. The nearby Idaho panhandle has been associated with extremist right-wing political ideologies and groups. Dr. Christine Hoover is the director of the Institute and she teaches in the MA Organizational Leadership Program. Her classes are offered at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Her research interests include applied ethics, diversity, and inclusion. Her leadership roles include serving as the former chair of the Washington State Legislative Ethics Board, in addition to her current role as the director of the Institute. Dr. Hoover holds a PhD and MBA from Bowling Green State University and a bachelor's degree from the University of Cincinnati. Christine joins us today from Gonzaga University campus in Spokane, Washington. Welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you very much, Tim. It's really a pleasure to be with you here today, even though the conversations are hard conversations to have. Well, that's certainly, I would, I would agree with you there, particularly after this past week of those two mass, mass murders. But Christine, please give us, uh, and for the benefit of my listeners, please give us a sense of your biography and what brought you to Spokane and the Pacific Northwest. Absolutely. I actually am a Midwesterner born and raised and came to Spokane about 10 years ago. But prior to coming to Spokane, my formative years were spent on a grain and dairy farm. And in Ohio, where my grandparents' grain and dairy farm was located, my grandfather would till the fields and as a part of that would turn up Native American arrowheads. And gosh, we didn't know what to do with them because there was little to no remaining Erie Nation's community in that area. The, the entire Erie community, the Erie Indians, had disappeared. And I thought, what does that mean for our family who now cares for the land, but yet the Native American genocide has completely erased them from this part of the country? Hmm. And that kind of sat in the back of my mind for a long time. And as I grew up, I was blessed to uh, have three sons. And my sons happen to wrestle. And if you know anybody who has sons who wrestle in high school or in college, it's very common for them to wear hoodies just as a part of their practice. Sure. So one of the things that reignited some of my passion and commitment to understanding how we live with each other and encourage human flourishing was when Trayvon Martin was killed. And for me particularly, whether we're talking about Ahmaud Aubrey or any other of the black men that had been killed, but for those men who lost their lives when they were wearing hoodies or when they were running through the neighborhood, those could have been my sons, mm. except my sons had lighter complexions. Okay. And for me, I cannot fathom the horror of losing your children in that way. And that, as a parent... Just as a human being, 
is a driving motivation for me to think personally about why this work matters. But when we came to Spokane, what drew us here was the Jesuit mission. As you mentioned, Gonzaga is one of 28 Jesuit colleges and universities. And as a Jesuit institution, although we are far from perfect and have tremendous work to do, we do have an aspiration, a, a true north, to try to address marginalizations in communities. Being men and women with others is a part of our origin story when you go back to St. Ignatius of Loyola. And that commitment to educate both the head and the heart and the hands, which is ingrained in all that we do, is really what I find compelling about this particular university or about Jesuit education in general. As a matter of fact, uh, when we came to Spokane, I wasn't familiar with the history of the Aryan nations in this community. I was drawn by people leading in, leaning in to create more humanizing, more uh, to recognize the inherent dignity in, in every person. Um, and as I began to learn about my context and where we had moved our family, I began to understand the importance of the work of the Institute because we have years of experience in struggling with white nationalism, mm -hmm. with people who want to secede and create a white ethno state, and we're committed to doing that work because of our mission. Mm -hmm. So with our mission and our geographic location, this is highly significant in terms of how we form our students and how we partner with our community. Now, when you spoke about that white ethnocentric uh, state, of course, I mentioned the the Idaho Panhandle, and it's not to not not to point a finger at the state of Idaho. I'm sure there are many wonderful and good, uh, fine, upstanding people there. But in the Idaho Panhandle, which is not far from Spokane, some of those extremist right wing communes and compounds were actually located. Did that influence the creation of the institute at Gonzaga? Indirectly, yes. Um, so let me let me mention a little bit about something called the Northwest Territorial, Territorial Imperative. Sometimes it's called the Northwest Imperative or the Northwest Front. Um, but it, it's a commitment in the 1970s and 80s to actively form a white separatist state. And as you mentioned uh, in your introduction, the eastern side of Washington is very distinct from the western side of Washington. The Cascade Mountains there create a tremendous divide in culture and how we understand ourselves, right? The eastern side of Washington is very um, geographically beautiful. The mountains are in the background everywhere. There are 200 lakes within an hour's drive. It, it's just a beautiful part of the country. Uh -huh. And so... You know, it's it's a place where people want to come, but it's also a place that's not as sparse, not as uh, densely populated. Of course. But in the 1970s and 80s, the Aryan Nations Congress, which was a part of the Aryan Nations compound in Hayden, Idaho, actually themed their gathering as the Northwest Territorial Imperative. And I mention that because that this area of the country, including Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Western Montana. And sometimes Northern California 
make up that area where women were supposed to have families with five and ten children to help populate it oh. as part of this Aryan white ethnostate. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's it's fascinating. Actually, uh, to your point about Northern California, you know, we all think I'm in San Francisco, of course, as you know, and San Francisco is. Uh, historically we've been a very tolerant anything goes kind of open city but once you go north of the golden gate some 50 miles north um changes dramatically for instance santa rosa which is only 60 some miles north of san francisco during the civil war santa rosa actually sent a contingent of men to fight with the confederacy uh against the north just uh, to your point about Northern California being part of this this separatist, uh, or, or certainly having some people who are are separatist and white supremacist, and it even so it goes back it goes back to historic times in the Civil War. Absolutely, and and the the recruiting of folks to um, move to this area if they hold white ethnostate preferences. Um, it, it really is a, a call to Western-style anti-government patriots mm-hmm. who wanted to take back what they perceived to be their God-given white homeland and follow the teachings of Richard Butler and the Church of Jesus Christ Christian. At least he was the leader of the Aryan nation. Mm-hmm. And he would qu- quote scripture from the Founding Fathers' documents and connect with the deeply held values of freedom and government, and uh, freedom from big government, rather, and and self-sustainability, right? Mm-hmm. So they really were appealing to the working-class man and his family. Well, it sounds as though Gonzaga and Spokane is is right at the center of certainly of this historic movement. Is that is that white ethnocentric movement? Is that still uh, quite prominent today, Christine? Well, I would say that uh, Spokane is a little bit more purple in terms of its conservative or liberal leanings. Um, There is a tremendous amount of community engagement that makes me very, very proud of this community in standing together in solidarity with people who are targeted. So like many, many communities across the country, we held vigils after the Atlanta shooting most recently. Our campuses are holding vigils. Um, we are a group that is looking for ways to address systemic racism and to um, lean into racial uh, inequality. And and looking at the school-to-prison pipeline, you know, we have significant issues with our prison population that are not uncommon to the rest of the country. But because of the people who have a commitment to this work, I think that we are also very much not allowing other people to define who we are as a community. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of work to be done, but there's a lot of people willing to do the heavy lifting. And I guess, uh, and of course, you as the director of the Institute and the Institute itself are in the front lines. Now let's come back to the journal which the Institute publishes. I noticed that you're, you're now taking, or submissions for the 17th edition of the journal have closed um, or, or about to close at the end of March, I guess. Um, tell us about that journal. Tell us about the, uh, the articles that appear in the journal. And this will be the 17th edition coming up 
of the uh, of the the journal of the institute. Let's talk a little bit about that and who are the contributors and uh, what are some of the what are some of the leading articles that appear in the seventeenth edition. If you can share that with us. Sure, we are really proud that the journal has become um, has won awards as an open access journal, meaning that it's free to anyone. You know, if you know anything about journal publications, the business model, and whether or not you have to purchase them, it becomes a very complicated mess. And we were very, very committed to this information being available and open to the public because the conversation is what matters, not that it sits on somebody's shelf somewhere. So. The Journal of Hate Studies is an academic peer-reviewed journal. There are faculty doing research who are making these submissions. And we have submissions from all across the world, actually, all across the United States, and some that come from our own faculty as well. But we think that it is so important to engage everyone in these conversations. There are certainly other academic journals that might focus on genocide or might focus on anti-Semitism. But when we think about hate, going back to your original introduction with the definition of hate, of dehumanization and of othering, whenever we think of someone as less than, we cover different levels of hate from bias, right, at the root cause that might escalate in some cases to genocide, so the different levels of hate. We cover the different targets of hate, whether that's people because of their sexual orientation, with their gender identity, their religion, uh, their skin color, their ethnicity. We cover, it's not just anti-racism, it's anti-hate work that we do. Mm -hmm. And in addition, because of the complexity of the problem, much of the work in hate studies has been done through a legal lens. There's lots of conversation around hate crimes, which is very, very important. Of course. However, it's not the fuller picture. So we're bringing in anthropologists, sociologists, communication studies. Uh, we're bringing in a broad range of people to look at this really wicked and complex issue to try and figure out how to move us forward. Mm -hmm. Now, is there is, there must be some overlap between the work that your institute does and the learned journal, the Journal of Hate Studies, and the work which is done by the Anti-Defamation League, the, Suff the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, do you work together with them? Uh, and as I said, I'm assuming there's some overlap between your mission and their missions. Absolutely. We try to find the ways to be most effective and efficient in the work that needs to get done because there's, there's plenty of work for everyone to do in this field, right? There's no shortage of hate these days. Yes. And so how can we collaborate and coordinate, find our lanes, and really elevate the impact of the resources that we do have available? So, for example, um, we have had the founder of the, the co-founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, Joe Levine, speak at our conference. And we will have, that was in a couple years ago, and in our upcoming conference in 2019, the ADL, as well as the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, We'll also be doing presentations during that conference. Now, you're referring to the conference that's coming up this coming November of 2021? Correct. So November 4th through 6th of 2021, we'll be holding a virtual conference. And so we have presenters that are coming from all over the world, uh, Italy, Zimbabwe, Israel, England, 
and all across the United States. And they'll be presenting in a way that we hope will bring us together in conversation that is a range of academic disciplines and also academics, practitioners, and students building bridges between theory and practice. So that virtual conference invites people to come in that may not otherwise have come to Spokane possibly. So we really hope that it's a rich dialogue about thinking how we can move this this conversation forward. Now, to the extent that it's a virtual conference, will members of the public, will my listeners be able to uh, tune into that? Absolutely. So registration will open on June 1st, and the website to find it is hopefully quite easy. It's www.gonzaga.edu. That's G-O-N-Z-A-G-A dot E-D-U forward slash I-C-O-H-S, International Conference on Hate Studies. And the registration is there. And yes, we, we hope and we encourage people who are committed to this work to come and join us in the conversation. Well, I, for one, will be joining you. Uh, I'll also hopefully be able to do a podcast or two uh, around the conference to, to publicize the great work that you're doing. So, um, and of course, between now and the conference, you and I agreed that we'd have another podcast to go over the actual agenda of the conference. So, our our listeners should have a uh, should have a pretty good sense of the agenda, who the speakers are, and uh, hopefully you'll you'll have many of our listeners who'll uh, who'll be able to participate. Terrific. Now, also, um, I was reading about one of your founders, a woman by the name of Eva Lassman, and the Eva Lassman Award. Could you tell us about Eva Lassman and the the role that she played in the creation of the the institute, uh, her special history, and the award which has been created in her memory? Absolutely. Eva Lassman was an amazing, beautiful soul. She was an educator. She lived here in Spokane, Washington, and she was committed to making sure that people knew about the Holocaust experience. And when she told her stories, when she visited classrooms, she spoke from the heart as a Holocaust survivor. So she spoke to her personal experiences. She spoke to the loss of her family members. And she spoke with great joy and hope and resiliency as an amazing experience for someone who had gone through so much hatred. And in order to celebrate how she held both the glass half empty and the glass half full, right? Not to, but she held the space of both hate and hope in her heart in wanting to inspire students to continue, or our entire community, to continue the work to understand what terrible atrocities we as human beings have committed and to never do that again. Unfortunately, that's a lesson that we still need tremendous work on. And so one of the things we know is that, yes, you cannot be silent in the face of hate, And you also need to reward, to value, to hold up and celebrate what it is that you aspire to. And that's what we're trying to do with the Eva Lassman Award. That Eva recognized that every single person is inherently full of dignity, 
and that because of that, it doesn't matter whether our students are studying anti-Semitism, she was Jewish, or if they're studying the LGBTQ community and their experiences, or whether their uh, student is studying Islamophobia. We have a student research award that encourages the curiosity and the research, the evidence-based work to help us find our way forward. We also have another set of awards named after Eva. It's the Eva Lassman Take Action Against Hate. Because so many times what I hear in all sorts of venues is that people want to do something and they don't know what to do. And so what we want to do is elevate people finding their own lane, finding their own way to engage. Eva happened to engage uh, through the education system and speaking to students. But we honor both an individual and an organization each year and hold them up as stepping up and taking action. That's that's so impressive. Now, one question that I have, and maybe playing a bit of a devil's advocate here, um, of course, your work is at the graduate level, the undergraduate level, but I'm thinking about the high schools, the middle schools, even, uh, you know, even grammar schools. Um, these mm-hmm. lessons about hate and what to watch for and to nip it in the bud, uh, can you, are you taking that message and those lessons learned to the high school and the middle school level also? Well, I'm so glad that you raised that question because it was just a couple years ago that we actually had Identity Europa recruiting in some of our high schools in this community. And it was a terrible, terrible um, experience, but also an awakening to the work that needs to be done at, at that level. And so, again, this is where we're partnering and staying in our lanes and collaborating with other organizations. So, for example, the ADL and the Pacific Northwest office specifically at our conference in November will be doing three workshops for high school educators in how to address hate in the classroom and how to recognize when students may be struggling, what the symbols are. We also um, are working with a group called the Western States Center. The Western States Center focuses a great deal on the high school and middle school groups as well. Again, you know, how are we dividing up this work and each focusing in our different ways that we can make a difference? That's uh, very impressive. Now, t- for the for the benefit of our listeners, uh, what is the uh, the Europa organization? Could you explain what that is, please? Identity Europa is a white nationalist, white supremacy organization that is a youth movement that tends to be fairly subtle in the way that it draws people in. It talks a great deal about pride in European ancestry and references images of Greek gods and and stone carvings and, you know, the Renaissance and this, you know, very beautiful artwork. And as it draws people in, it also begins to get them deeper into communities that are very misogynist, very exclusionary. And by the time people are drawn in, they may not realize what they've gotten themselves into. And that's particularly dangerous when you're recruiting in high school. Of course, naive. Kids in high school, yes. Mm -hmm. Naive young men and women who all of a sudden, you know, are uh, enamored of, uh, you know, beautiful artistic photographs and 
what ha- you know my gee my great grandfather came from Norway or Germany or whatever and uh, yeah I mean they on its face they could be naively uh, and simplistically drawn to it without realizing that they were being manipulated by an organization which has a very different and rather sinister agenda. You know, and that's that's exactly it, that we all have a history and a background and a pride in our own personal stories, and that is very much a part of how we can understand something called intergroup dialogue, how we can come together to hear our own stories and hear the stories of others to have a deeper understanding of humanity. And I think that gets lost sometimes, that sometimes White communities, white men, white women, white girls, white boys, feel as though they are losing in this idea that they are bad or wrong. And it's simply a matter of saying we need to correct past injustices, right? When we say that those past injustices, whether slavery or the indigenous genocide, we say, I didn't do that. That's not who we are. We need to recognize it's a very much a part of our past that infer, informs our current context today. Mm-hmm. And so we need to lean into owning our stories, our pride, and our challenges to figure out how we want to move forward. Hmm. Very, uh, very thought-provoking. Um, I'm uh, so looking forward both to the conference, the journal, and uh, following up on some of these insights. And Christine, any additional thoughts about the the Institute at this point? You know, I think I'd share with you a quote from Parker Palmer. He wrote, Healing the Heart of Democracy, and he runs the Center for Courage and Renewal. And I think it speaks to um, our human condition. What he says, what shall we do with our suffering? That is one of the most fateful questions human beings must wrestle with. Sometimes suffering rises into anger that leads to murder or war. At other times, it descends into despair that leads to quick or slow self-destruction. Silence is what we get when we do not know what else to do with our suffering. And I think this idea of caring for one another of listening to one another is fundamental in how we reach out to our family members, how we reach out to our colleagues to listen and hear their story, to hear where they're coming from, and to maybe, as the trust develops, as the conversation deepens, to explore what it means to be a more inclusive and welcoming community. I couldn't agree with you more, Christine. It is my great pleasure to introduce a Pacific Northwest gem. Bethany B. Light Montgomery is a spoken word poet. She'll be performing at our conference in November 21. And here she is today to perform her poem, Gratitude. I'm done writing back my tears. Oh, yes, I'm here. Uh, So again, this piece is called Gratitude. I'm done fighting back my tears. I now choose to embrace them. My demons, I have faced them. I no longer internalize hatred. 
I am tremendously grateful. So I always say thank you. Absolutely appreciative. Just know that I'm thankful for all the blessings this universe provided. I look toward the future, never short-sighted. Embrace opportunities, never indecisive. Never undecided because no task is too giant. What we focus on expands. So for me, I choose to focus on statements of I am, I can, I will, I do, I want, I love because our thoughts become things. So I believe in my dreams. I have control over my own reality. Enjoying the positive energies of those who share my same mentality. Good vibes is what I choose to surround me. I practice meditation, allowing for me to maintain my consciousness. So I remain an optimist. You girl, don't quit. I do the exact opposite. Failure is not a consequence. I use what I learned to propel like a rocket ship. There is no limitations for ambition and confidence. I set my goals and then I accomplish them. I treasure the gifts I've been given. All the souls who listen to my poetry, words I speak stemming from my intuition, emitting an aura of abundance and love so I glisten. No longer holding on to negative beliefs. Practice what I preach, live what I teach, light, she is me. I close my eyes and I still see I'm tapped into the frequency. But no, I'm not perfect. Sometimes I slip up, but I always get up. I don't beat myself up. Instead, I show myself love. Remember, setbacks lead to breakthroughs. So when adversity is present, let us all prefer to say thank you. Practice what we preach. Tap into the frequency. Power to the poetry. Peace. Thank you. Bethany, that was very powerful. And this is the first time in my 135 episodes here on the San Francisco experience that we've had such a an uplifting and inspirational closing and certainly never had a work of art like your poem. So once again, on behalf of all my listeners, we have listeners in 24 countries. I want to thank you very much for being the, uh, being the face and being the, the soul and the inspiration to so many young people around the world in these, uh, these tough and trying times. So uh, good luck to you, Bethany. Uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing much about you and your future and I look forward to seeing you uh, virtually at least in the upcoming November conference and Christine once again let me thank you for your presentation on the Institute of Hate and uh, the Institute of Hate Studies I should say and for introducing Bethany Montgomery to the San Francisco experience. Well, Jim, I'm, I am always delighted, elated, and grateful uh, for 
people who are leaning into these conversations and doing this work in every single way. And thank you for including Bethany. She is such a powerful young leader and, and really inspires so many people with her work. Well, thank you. To- yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on, Jim. I appreciate it. Thank you, Bethany. You're, uh, you're quite inspirational. And in closing, for our listeners, please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com, and subscribe to the podcast. It's free to do so, and it ensures that all future episodes come directly to your inbox. It also lets you read my blog, send me an email, and peruse my book. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.